Side with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the, oh my God, I was about to say from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I wish, I wish. <laughs> no, no. From a suburb of New York City and from Brooklyn, it's Andrew Gunling. And J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? I am so excited about this podcast. We are going to take you around the world in in a kind of a dis- dis- discovery or exploration of fan football culture. A certain oh, this, type. Yeah. No, no, no. This is – yeah, this podcast will be fun on multiple levels. What you're referencing, we're going to speak with James Montague, who's been on this podcast a couple times in the past. Um we're going to talk with him a little bit later on because he he's an author, he's a journalist, and he just wrote a book about a subject that is so fascinating to you and I, and we've talked about many times on this show, and that is a book centered around the topic of ultras and that culture within this sport. Um, and he his to say that he did a deep dive on it is really selling short the research that he did. He traveled for essentially a year. I think he said 10 months. He traveled the world. Going and, and, for lack of a better term, embedding himself within different ultra groups, uh, and just kind of observing the way they go about their their, their fandom, uh, their politics. So he will join us later on in this podcast. And like I said, it's something that we've talked about on this podcast a lot: is ultras and and that culture. And and he's gonna go he's gonna go deep. And it's not always pretty. Um, we've detailed many a red card on the behavior of ultras. So he, uh, James Montague will join us. And I think you're going to want to listen to that because it's really, it's fascinating. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And the Bundesliga is back, Andrew. Well, that is why I am, I am truly excited because we are actually going to talk soccer, like actual substantive soccer. Like it's coming back. One of the major leagues in this world is coming back this weekend. Uh, and so we are almost treating this podcast like it's its own mini season preview uh nine games remaining and so we're going to give you five questions um to kind of detail the uh, the remainder of the season this final sprint i think it's more of a case of previously on the bundesliga rather than a preview i think it's a nice little little thing to to whet the appetite for the weekend and also i think it's great for us andrew because it's a league that gets short shrift from us because of the the behemoth Premier League. And often I've watched games like a dull, drab Leicester-Southampton game. And then I've, I, I, it's around 12, 12.30 and I'm flicking over and it's maybe the second half of a brilliant Bundesliga game. And I'm like, why am I watching more of this? And now we get now we get the chance to kind of focus in on it. it I'm excited, actually. It's, it's yeah. going to be fun. By the way, I think you're witnessing history right now. You can see me through this... Uh... Yes, this this program we use. I think this is the longest that my hair has actually ever been in my entire life. What do you think well, about that? Well, um, I actually think it suits you. Um, I think it's a. I mean, you've got nice hair anyway. I, I would venture to say. Um, I, I would say at some point, though, knowing you, the sides will become too unkempt for your ears, yeah. and it'll create it'll create an ear problem. And and I'm I'm uh, I'm in that area too. I have a hat on. Because my hair is just a greasy mess, I don't go outside. I'm, I'm like a troll under a bridge. But I will be doing on either Thursday or Friday. I will be doing the home haircut. I've uh, I can go no further. I've bought the Conair clippers. It will be happening. So tune in for more haircut talk next week when I when I clearly have to shave it all off because I butchered it. 
Godspeed. By the way, I wanted to follow up on something. So I'm not, I won't use his name in case he didn't want it out there. But a buddy of mine, who you know as well, works in the advertising world. Uh, and he, he helps write and create commercials that you have all seen before. And so he texted me because um, he listened to our last podcast. And he actually loved our conversation about what happened in the ad world. And he kind of gave me a little bit like how we talked, we kind of mocked what the ad world did oh, yeah. around the coronavirus, how every single company simultaneously came out with the same exact commercial, emotional piano, emotional plea that we're all in this together, emotional plea to buy their product. They all did it. Um, and so he, uh, he said to me, he said, yeah, most good agencies, ad agencies tried to tell their clients that this was happening, that all of these companies were demanding the same type of ad, but most clients didn't care and wanted it anyway. I mean, they're, that's incredible to me because they've all melded together into one ad, which is, you know, basically this product loves you. This product's been there for you through the hard times. Cue a shot of the troops. Yeah. Uh, cue a shot of a hospital. Cue a shot of a child being lifted up. All those things that are, you know, that touch our heartstrings very much and that are very close to us. But this company will be there for you in the sense that we will continue to take your money. That kind, that kind of vibe, and then and we ride, and ride, yeah. anyway. so I thought it was. I thought it was cool of him to kind of give me like the backstory that oh. yes, well, he he's basically saying yes, we are all everyone in advertising is keenly aware of what's happening, and we're trying to kind of move into a different direction. Well, thank him for the thank him for the insight. Uh, that's really good, and uh, I would just like to say that um, I have an intro for our Bundesliga chat. Are you ready? <gasps> oh. Uh, Hello and welcome to Dassey's Good. You know what's good? Having the Bundesliga back. So here we go. Five questions about the return of the Bundesliga. Now here's the first one. And I really, uh, I know I said we're going to talk soccer and obviously will, but I, I do think that it is important for fans who haven't been following every step of the way um, just exactly what protocols are going to be in place for when the league returns. And I think it's important for people to kind of know when they turn on their TVs like what they should be expecting to see, because this is all whatever you remember from uh, nine weeks ago in the way things looked, it's going to be different now. So here it is. So the first question is, what is the Bundesliga's actual plan in returning? So I kind of have it all here for you and jump in JJ whenever you want. Um, I'm going to just roll through this until you stop me. So Saturday is when it re-begins. Borussia Dortmund and Schalke is probably your most marquee match. Huge derby. Here are the key things to know. Um, like we said, this is going to be a sprint. The plan is for everyone to be finished by June 27th. So that is nine games in seven weeks. Plus there's rumors of wanting to have the DFB Pokal semifinals completed by then as well. So you're talking about cramming in 10 match days within seven weeks. That is a lot. Um, there will obviously be no fans in stadiums. You all know that teams are going to be allowed five substitutions per match. Um, now here's some of the interesting quirks. No more than 322 people will be allowed into the stadium for a game. And within that 322, it essentially breaks down to this. They've, they've gone deep here. 98 people allowed pitch side. That includes the teams, referees, all that VAR officials. Um, 115 in the stands, which I think is a lot of security personnel. Um, and then 109 outside of the stadium. And this includes everyone from, uh, TV personnel, VAR, more VAR technicians. There's engineers, things like that. So essentially they've said that there are basically 322 essential people to make a game, a televised game of football go off. Um, 
Now, there's also been reports that there's going to be random checks from club medical personnel to ensure that players are observing all of the proper guidelines when they're not at the stadium in terms of social distancing. Um, So now here's some of the things that I know people are wondering about. So what will happen when a goal is scored? We're so used to seeing hugging, high-fiving, team celebrations. Allow me to read this to you from ESPN, JJ. And this is stuff that I really find jarring. The Bundesliga told the clubs on Friday that players are not allowed to celebrate together, exchange high fives, or embrace. Quote, short contact with elbow or foot is permitted. The players are so creative. I'm excited to see what will happen if somebody scores, Bobich says. That's uh, Freddie Bobich, sporting director from Eintracht Frankfurt. Players are also asked not to spit other than during rehydration. So that is what will happen after a goal is scored. Short contact with elbow or foot. We're going to see some uh, funky chicken dances, I think. The elbow can touch in the funky chicken, as we know. Um, Again, very nice, very cool. But it was the same as taking out the, the handshake in the Premier League game, and then you're going to start crashing into people in tackles for over 90 minutes. Well, what I'm curious about is... so. And there's more that I want to get to, but I, I wanted to ask you specifically what, like, so let's say they disobey that. The referees have been read into this. If players are hugging, like, are the referees within their rights to to hand out a yellow card? If this is an order that's been handed down, then that's... But if the referees have been told to uh, to regulate celebrations in the same way if you take your jersey off, the referees have been told to give a yellow card, then no, I guess... Yeah. Then I guess they will, but this yeah. is so this is so inane and silly when you consider that you're going to be man marking someone cheek to jowl on a corner kick. It's it's like celebrations. I guess it's about minimizing risk. I don't know. Um, all right. Also, this if fans because there's concern now. Okay, no fans in the stadiums, but you know how passionate these fans are. They're going to show up like what we saw with PSG. Uh-huh. Um, well, not so fast, my friend. To quote Lee Corso. Uh, if fans show up in large groups outside the stadium, their team will automatically lose that match. So up to this point, Bundesliga officials, team officials said that they've heard nothing, whether it be on social media or wherever, that their fan bases uh, are intending to do this. So it seems like up to now, we'll see what happens on Saturday, but up to now, everybody is planning on following the rules. Now, here's the big one, and this is this is the tough one. What if somebody tests positive? I think this is what leagues all around the world in every sport have been grappling with. How do we handle this eventuality, which is almost a certainty, I feel like. Um, So I've seen some conflicting numbers here, but I'm going to go with what ESPN is reporting, that a player will be, uh, players are going to be tested twice a week, the day before a match, and then another day during the week. Uh, And if there's a midweek match, they'll be tested the day before that midweek match. Now, Here's where it gets kind of confusing. If a player tests positive, they're going to go into quarantine for a mandatory 14 days along with anyone that they've been in contact with. Uh, However, it's being stressed that this does not mean an entire team will have their matches put on hold. However, it's confusing because in the second division right now in Germany, they're dealing with this already. Dynamo Dresden just had two players test positive and the entire club is going into quarantine, thus putting their return on hold. So to me, it almost looks like Dresden is setting the precedent here. Whether or not the Bundesliga is telling you that this is what's going to happen, if that's already what a club has deemed to be the safest course of action, will will it be okay for another club to not do the same? I don't know. Um, what they're basically saying is uh, if a player 
test positive, they're going to ask that player, the people he's been in contact with, and they're kind of categorizing the level of that contact. If you were in direct contact with somebody for 15 minutes or more, they're saying that person then also needs to go into quarantine. This is going to be, this is, to me, this is going to be the hard part is managing this kind of situation because I don't know. I don't know what's right. I don't, I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you what the proper amount of time is before the virus could become dangerous to somebody you've been in contact with. I, I have no idea. And I don't know if these Bundesliga officials know either. So people are going to be relying on local health officials, the government for, for what their standard is. And they're just, they are the guinea pig now for the world. We'll find out if this is good enough or not. Yeah, the eyes of the world, or the football world at least, and the sporting world will be on the Bundesliga this weekend. Finally, just before we move on from this, it's been reported players will drive to home games rather than travel together, while people carriers will bring them in small groups to away matches. It has also been reported, as you said, medical professionals will turn up without warning to make sure they're observing the guidelines and to make sure that incidents like the Solomon Kalou incident, where he... Uh, don't happen again. But anyway, let's get to the I football. Mean, well, well, hang on. Before we do that, I do have I have got one more thing because I I do think that this is important too. I want to read you one thing, and then I swear we'll focus on football. Um, but I, I'm reading stuff about this, and I I just want to say that I I really really hope that they're getting back to games because they truly believe they're in a place where it's safe to do so, and not because other forces are at play. This is from ESPN FC JJ. Um, they write as many as 18 of the 36 teams in Germany's top two divisions, could have faced severe financial difficulties had the leagues not returned this season, according to Bundesliga CEO Christian Seifert. Uh, he said if the leagues were canceled, they would lose in the region of $800 million. Now, Hans Joachim Watzke, uh, Borussia Dortmund CEO, said ominously, quote, the Bundesliga would not exist in its current form if the season was canceled. This echoed what the DFL Executive Committee said in April, and their quote was, we do not want an economic crisis to lead to structural damage that could be irreparable and radically change the face of German professional football. And so getting the games back on television, even without spectators, was established as a priority. I just hope, I I know money's important. I'm not going to be so naive as to not think that. But if they're doing this because money trumps safety, then that, I don't know, I'm going to choose to trust them. Andrew, of course it's about the money. That is a massive part of it. And they've even began talks about how they need to restructure German football so this it doesn't happen again. So if there is a crisis, they are not so beholden to the final payment from a TV company, which ultimately controls their fate. fate. I would just say this before we move on. If there is a country that I have faith in, to execute diligent scientific protocol to make a league safe, it's Germany. And that is just based on what I know about them and based on their leaders and their their prime minister, their their pre- president who is a a scientist herself. This is this is a friggin' black mirror episode. Like that show isn't isn't like I never watched anymore. It. I never oh, watched it, but I like, loved it. But I feel like that show, like it's this has all become so real that that show's not even interesting anymore. Like, do you know what? Do you know what else is real, Andrew? What football? Football uh, is real. Come on. Yeah, I'm sorry with with bogging you down with important and pertinent information. I'm uh, sorry, my head's full. I can't do much more of it. I'm at breaking point with this stuff. All right. So and also if and also there's a, there's a constituency of people out there that will be in our DMs. You're scaring people if you whenever we do this. So. I'm not scaring anybody. I'm giving the information. 
I, I agree you are. This is, I'm not speculating. I'm just saying this is what the Bundesliga is going to look like when it comes back. Okay, here's the Animals. Football. All right. For a uh, second question, first football question, just how much is this Bayern's title to lose? And that's such an interesting question. And I think usually it's not an interesting question because they've had their season stumble. They've had their bit of upheaval with a new manager. But it's typical Bayern. We've come into the business end of the season, or rather a little bit later, and they're four points clear at the top. But Yeah, we should go through what the top of the table actually looks like. Yeah, we um, should do that. Bayern, We've got- Bayern are on top at 55 points. Uh, Borussia Dortmund are second on 51. RB Leipzig next with 50. Uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach are in fourth on 49. So, you know, even Mönchengladbach at 49 points, like, is it likely? No, but I still would say that they're part of this title race. But, but if you rewind eight weeks and say things are absolutely normal and you go into the next Bundesliga match week, I'm expecting Bayern Munich to win. I'm expecting them to go on and win the league like they have done in previous seasons, despite their early season upheavals. Now we've had this break. And so there's a few questions that need to be asked. So how might that affect a striker like Robert Lewandowski, who was in top form? And we say, for example, Thomas Muller, who has been rejuvenated since Hansi Flick took the job. How does a new manager bounce work for Hansi Flick when the bounce has been interrupted by uh, a global... uh, The bounce is no longer. The ball has stopped bouncing. Well, yeah, but, I mean, are the things that he implemented that that really turned Munich's season around, are those things going to click into gear when we go back playing football? Now, younger players like Nabry and Davis, I don't think they get rust, but maybe, say, someone like a Jerome Boateng gets a little bit of rust. How are players affected by no games in two months? So ordinarily, I would say this is Bayern's title to lose, but all these kind of intangibles, we really have no answers for. So I suppose that point, from that point of view, we don't know. You're right. But look, ultimately, though, I do believe that when you're Bayern Munich, you've won seven straight titles and you have a four-point lead with nine matches to go. I mean, ultimately, yes. I'm not saying that it's not in question, but it is right now their title to lose. Um, they have a, a fairly difficult schedule from here on out. They still have to go to Borussia Dortmund. They have to, uh, to go to Bayer Leverkusen. They'll host Gladbach. So that's three of the top five that they still do have to play. Now, look, going to Dortmund in an empty stadium, like I don't know, is, is that still a disadvantage going there without fans being there? Not really, I guess. Um, other than the fact that it's not their own stadium that they're used to, but no fans. I don't know how much it's going to even matter, road games versus home games. Um, the thing that you bring up that's interesting to me is the the question of form. Like, we've had this two-month this two month gap, so does form even matter? Like, I'm, I'm looking at Bayern's most recent results. Their last four matches before this coming weekend, 2-0 over Augsburg, a win. Uh, 1-0 win over Schalke in the Cup. 6-0 win back in the league over Hoffenheim, and then that 3-0 win at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea in the Champions League. Uh, they haven't lost since December 7th, and that was against Gladbach, so in Gladbach, so no shame in that necessarily. They've had only one draw in that span, which is against Leipzig, so they've been truly dominant for months now. Um, but like I said, does that form come to just kind of like a screeching halt? Uh, if you haven't kicked the ball, you don't have match fitness, so we are entering in... Imagine starting next season if teams and players hadn't done a, pre, a full preseason. We're kind of in that zone. There's only so much they'll have been able to do in the controlled environment that they've had to train in in the last few days. So 
it's fascinating. That question, I, I don't know. Maybe Bayern's rhythm is 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 upset and it opens the door for Dortmund to do something. Maybe. I, I guess before we move to the next one, I kind of, in a moment like this, lean on the idea of um, this is the same situation for everyone. Everyone has dealt with the same gap, these training issues, empty stadiums. So I kind of just, in a moment like that, you throw out like momentum, you throw out variables, and you just kind of have to lean on, okay, who actually has the best team? Who's the most talented team? And I still think as good as Dortmund and Leipzig are, I still think that it's Bayern Munich. Uh, And with them being spotted a four-point lead, uh, they're still going to be my pick to go on and do this. Um, Next one? Yes, sir. All right, which player are you most excited about watching? I I, I want to insert the caveat straight away. I'm excited about this Borussia Dortmund team. Giovanni Reina, Jaden Sancho, uh, Haaland, obviously. They are, look, they're going to be box office. They are box office already. Um, but I want to talk about Miller Rashika of Werder Bremen, Andrew. Ten goals and five assists across a very tough season for Werder Bremen. Now, he's a busy, energetic forward. He plays off the left-hand side. He's in demand everywhere, including, I read, Liverpool and West Ham, strangely. And RB Leipzig, apparently, because you can get him cheap. There's something in his contract that says he could move for $13 million. And at 23 years of age, he just seems like the modern footballer that would play in a three up front. Anytime I've, I've tuned in to watch Werder Bremen, he's been such a lively presence. And if they're going to stay up, they need him to really restart this season strong. Um, Kai Havertz and Leverkusen will be stiff opposition to restart with. But he's a key player here. And Andrew, I don't need to tell you, um, Werder Bremen, uh, Josh Sargent and the guys are in serious trouble. They're 17th in the table and... Um, they're four points off Fortuna Dusseldorf, who are in the relegation playoff position. So, you know, this is this is really bad. And if if you'd said at the start of the season, well, Werder Bremen are going to finish below Union Berlin, I mean, I wouldn't have believed it. But that's, you know, that's really possible now. And this was a manager, their manager at the start of the season was talking about the Europa League spots. Yeah. So, well, they've been they've been horrifying defensively. Uh, given up, I think they've given up more goals than anybody in the league up to this point. Yeah, and they've got a decent squad. They've got a you know a solid enough squad. But the problem is, um, you know, if you're leaky at the back, you're going to end up in these in this kind of of a struggle. But Rijeka for me is a great player to watch, and at the risk of you know kind of <laughs> he he reminds me of a player that could come into like a Jurgen Klopp style and and fit in seamlessly. He's that kind of player. Uh, let's see. I went over to uh, Leipzig with uh, Christopher Nkunku from uh, RB Leipzig. Um, you know the website, whoscored.com. They keep track of players' form from leagues all over the world. So over his last six appearances, Nkunku was the only player in the league, in the Bundesliga, with an average rating above eight at 8.09, which is, honestly, that's astounding uh, for that number over six games. He's only 22 years old, started out the season as kind of a fringe starter for them, and now you simply can't take him out of the lineup. 15 assists uh, so far in the season, five in his last six games before the stoppage. Um, but sometimes the stat that I like even more uh, for a playmaker like Nkunku isn't necessarily the assist because you're kind of relying on somebody else to finish the job that you started. I kind of like key passes. Um, he, in his last six games, is at 4.7 per match. That is uh, by far best in the league. 
in this window. Just to put that number in perspective, overall for the entire season across Europe's top five leagues, uh, Dimitri Payet is first uh, at four per game. So I know it's a smaller sample size than Nkunku has in six, uh, just six games, but 4.7 tells you just how good of a number that is. He is consistently putting guys in the right positions to score goals. Uh, so he would be somebody for me. Uh, like I, I agree with you. Ultimately, I think Borussia Dortmund is, is true box office. There were a lot of guys that I could have chosen from them. Like when they're playing, I feel like no matter what, that's kind of the game that I feel like I'm going to gravitate towards. But RB Leipzig is right there in this title race. So uh, Christopher Nkunku would be somebody I would – I put on your radars. Only 22 years old, also Premier League fans. So you know these big clubs with all their money are going to come calling for guys like him at some point. Uh, next question. Which remaining match are you most excited for? Um, Saturday, June 20th, 2020, Orby Leipzig, who were right in the mix in this race, will host Borussia Dortmund. Oh, we chose the same one. Ah, oh, God. Really? <laughs> Well, well yeah, let me let me just, let me just lay it out for people. Um, if if you want exciting football, you know, in Europe and in the Bundesliga this season, RB Leipzig under Nagelsmann have been pretty much one of the teams to watches to watch. And you know, if you look at Borussia Dortmund, look at all these young players I'm about to list off, all in on one field playing against each other. So you've got Sancho, Haaland, Hakimi, Brandt. Versus Timo Warner, Sabitzer, Schick, Adams, Forsberg. I mean, this just could be real fun. And I'm assuming that both Leipzig and Borussia Dortmund are going to still be in the mix come the penultimate game of the season. It's the second to last game of the year. So, yeah, um, I would agree. And the race, remember, too, the race, the top four race is not settled because Bayer Leverkusen is right there in fifth. Right. So one of these two teams, even if they've fallen out of the title race, second to last game of the year, you got to believe one of them may still be battling to stay up uh, for Champions League places. Um, yeah, you mentioned all that. You say, it's funny, You how did you just term it? You said this could be really exciting. Well, I, I would tell you it already has been because when these two teams, they faced back in December, uh, it ended 3-3. It was one of the games of the year. Borussia Dortmund threw away a 2-0 lead early on. Timo Werner scored two goals in the first eight minutes of the second half to tie it. Uh, then Jaden Sancho put Dortmund back up front, and then Patrick Schick in the 78th put home a rebound to level uh, up at 3-3. Thrilling game. It was in the pouring rain. Uh, uh, Leipzig had a goal taken off for uh, for a close offsides call. It was just up and down. Like you said, you mentioned all the names. Just like high drama. Uh, and now, yeah, you throw Gio Reyna and Erling Holland into the mix. Two guys who weren't, obviously, Holland wasn't a part of it at that point. And Reyna was not really a, a first-teamer for Dortmund yet. So, yeah, that was the one that I, I circled too. And it's funny because Bayern still do play Borussia Dortmund on uh, match day 28, which is always one of the marquee games of the year. But yeah, I went to Leipzig as well for Dortmund. Yeah, Dortmund's propensity to be brilliant going forward and give up a lot of chances is just, it's mouthwatering when you consider Nagelsmann, his tactical ability and, and the way they kind of always play, or more or less always play on the front foot. Great game. Yeah. Uh, all right, last one. For the American-centric fan, is this actually the best league to have come back? Uh, there's no question for me, Andrew. Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams. They, you look at those two central midfield players we expect and how crucial we think they will be in the future of the U.S. men's national team. This gives us a chance to really hone in on them and to watch them. You've got Josh Sargent, who's at this 
weird moment in his career where I honestly don't believe he's an out-and-out goal scorer, but he needs to come up big with goals. He's only three this season for Werder Bremen in a relegation-bound team. And you just look at the, and obviously the emergence of Giorena. You could say the spine from centre-forward number 10, Josh Sargent, to the midfield, to maybe even another number 10 or a, more, a creative midfielder in Gio Reyna, attacking player. You've got like almost the spine of the future for the U.S. men's national team. Now, if you want to throw in John Brooks yeah. at Wolfsburg at centre-back, then you truly have a spine. Absolutely. And if you want to go with a goalkeeper, I know he's injured, so that's unfortunate, but Zach Steffen won't be lining out for Fortuna Dusseldorf. So, But if you, if you did, imagine he was fit then the keys to the future for this U.S. men's national team are playing in Germany. So this is obviously the league to watch. Yeah. Uh, also that guy at, at Chelsea. But, yeah, your point. Oh, is yeah. Oh, come on. It, yeah. You well, I, I just need to let people know that J.J. did not forget about uh, Christian Pulisic. Um, so I was reading at Stars and Stripes FC, their blog about American soccer, um, and they were writing about this, and they said between the first and second divisions – uh, of German football. You want to guess how many clubs um, have at least one American on their roster? Uh, 15. 18. Oh. So essentially half. Uh, so yes, this is, if you're an American, if you like, or somebody who just loves American soccer, yes, this is, this is the league. Um, the guy you mentioned him. I'm so curious, JJ. I wonder if you are too about Gio Reyna because like what a weird time to have this all kind of go away. Like you've, you've just broken through um, and are playing at this high level. Remember the goal that he set up in the Champions League first leg against PSG? Like, he was flying. The goal that he scored, of course, in the cup. Against, against Werder Bremen. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he was really beginning to, to emerge. And then, boop, just, like, taken out from under him. I just, you know, we, we keep talking about form. I, I, I hope so badly that, it, at least for this season, not permanently, but I hope this hasn't stunted whatever sort of forward momentum he was building uh, heading into like this, this final stretch. I don't think, I, th- I think that will affect players at the other end of their careers more, the sudden stoppage rather than the younger players. I, yeah. I, I, would, I wouldn't worry hugely about that. There was a cool feature uh, on ESPN about Gio Reyna, just sort of like diving into what his life has been like uh, before this coronavirus and kind of now into it. Um, it's him and uh, and Erling Holland. It makes sense. They're both like two of the youngest guys on the team. They've apparently struck up a great friendship. Where I didn't know this, but Reina, I guess, is too young to be able to drive right now in Germany. So Holland has served as like his chauffeur, um, and it sounds like Holland, uh, Reina, and Jaden Sancho have become like fast friends. How can we become friends with them and hang out with them? I need them to be my friend. So I, I think we. We've matured too much, Andrew, for that. There's more than a decade between us and them, and, and that, that hurts us in the becoming friends with young rising stars. I guess, of, yeah. of I guess now football. you're right. Like, Gio is 17. I can't, like, I could be his dad. Yeah. I, well, I, I prefer the dad he actually has. He, was, he's a, he had a much better first touch than you. And by the way, if he's his, we've met his father. Um, I've met his dad on a, a, several occasions now, and he's just a very calm, level-headed person. Oh, my God. He's such a nice man. Yeah, he is indeed. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned Josh Sargent, too. I just wanted to – I kind of – like, I'm not 
I'm not rooting for anything bad, obviously, to happen to Werder Bremen, but I sort of like that Josh Sargent is going to be thrown into some really, really high stakes, important matches. Like, I, yeah. I want to see him rise to the occasion. Now, I, they don't get a chance to defend themselves because the Fox broadcast team will not be on the broadcast going forward. But I saw an argument between, I can't quite remember who it was, but it was it was Ian Ian Joy was arguing that he needs to score more goals, he needs to do this or do that. I actually think he is a second striker if you play two up front, and I think he's a link man. I think he's actually more of a creative force than he is an out-and-out goal scorer. You've always said that. I have always said that. The best moments I've seen from him is not being scoring goals, and he, he's got that in his locker. It's more, it's more linking the play, dropping off, and he does that for Werder. Now, you know, there's veterans at Werder, there's Klassen, and there's Nuri Sahin in the midfield that maybe need to... To, to find him or they need to find a relationship with, with what Sargent is doing. But I, I, I think he brings more than just goals. And it's unfortunate now that the pressure, the only metric he may be measured by, unless it's assists, will be goals because they need goals badly. Yeah. Also, um, last bit on this. Did you see what Weston McKinney said the other day to DeZone? Uh He said, for me, the next goal is England. It has always been my dream to play in the Premier League. Well. This is your chance to uh, to be seen, Weston. You're doing fine, Weston. You're doing fine. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, Bundesliga kicks off this weekend. Uh, all I, I haven't seen the actual channel listings, but it, it's a Fox league here in the United States. So uh, check out FS1, FS2. I wonder if regular Fox, like what is regular Fox going to be airing that is so important that time of day on weekends that they couldn't be airing whatever the marquee Bundesliga match is? I feel like they should. They should get on that. Yeah, actually, what are they airing? They should. Just I don't know. Do, yeah. They should just do that. Throw it on there. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, right. Why not? Um, man, I can't wait. Like this is actual games of of importance. It's gonna it's gonna look weird at first, but I, I don't know. I think we'll get used to it. Sadly, like I don't want to get used to not seeing fans at games. Like fans in soccer and sports in general are such a huge part of the action and the atmosphere. And, and like I don't know. I just love that element of it. But you know. Right now, we're kind of, as sports fans, like, beggars can't be choosers. Like, this is what it is, and we're going to enjoy it. Look, people can't complain. It's live competitive football. Just watch it. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. We'll get to James Montague in just a couple minutes. But there's a couple other quick things, both in MLS and in the Premier League, that we felt like kind of needed to be mentioned here. Um, I wanted to mention MLS first, JJ. It sounds like they're getting closer to at least having a plan. Whether or not this is made official, I guess we'll find out in the coming days. But um, right now it's being reported that what they ideally would like to do is have everyone go to Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex. So all teams will go there and start training um, on uh, around June 1st. So they'll all kind of be in this MLS bubble at Disney World. And then in lieu of a season, they're looking at a tournament involving all 26 teams, which would begin somewhere like three to four weeks after uh, this training begins. Multiple sources told ESPN that one proposed format for the tournament would see the league's teams divided into groups, uh, with each team playing around five games during the group stage. This would be followed by a knockout stage with consolation games staged to make sure each team played the same number of matches. So obviously soccer fans are familiar with this kind of format. Um, Here's what I would say about it. Uh, you know, moments ago, I just got finished saying beggars can't be choosers. And that certainly applies here. Uh, these are crazy times. You take what you get and you, you be happy with it. 
and I will be, and I will watch this and it'll be cool and fun. However, it's such a, an extreme break from the norm in terms of the league itself that like, I'll like it. And if, if, if the Philadelphia union are to go on and win, I'll be happy about it. But this, this season, if they do kind of have a season of this format, it will always carry an asterisk. Like it would be hard for a team to win this season and like go on telling everyone, yeah, we also have uh, an MLS cup. Like this feels like a fun thing that is kind of just separate unto the league itself. I think if it gets good viewership and the tournament is a success or broadly enjoyed by fan bases, MLS will have no no qualms whatsoever with having a truncated regular season and then a, 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 an almost March Madness style tournament. Oh my god, you've lost your what do you so that's it now. So like if this so if people watch this, what would ever be the the gauge to determine that this is now going to replace the league as we know it? This is this is you throwing hot takes out there. Uh, like, I, honestly, Andrew, until we see a full proposal for them uh, for what they're going to do in their tournament, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of with you, uh, but we'll see what they do. What's What's interesting is the news that's come um, today. I suppose not really news, but Syria hopes for a June 13th return again, pending government. That's important. Yeah, but it's it's it's. Pending government approval, so we'll see how that goes. And then there's sources saying that the the championship will w- return before the Premier League. Um, and then I saw a counter report to that that the championship is having a a kind of a fight within itself in the EFL along the same lines as the Premier League fight, which is over the relegated teams wanting to remove relegation because of possible neutral venues. Or in the case of the championship, they just want relegation removed from this season, which I don't know how it's going to work. And then another conflicting report. We all thought it would be neutral grounds for the Premier League restart, but ITV issued this at 6.13 p.m. today, or yesterday, was it? Uh, The 12th of May, so yesterday. Police are open to finishing the Premier League season at home grounds after all. The Premier League's campaign to scrap the plan for neutral venues appears to have been successful. Sources say the country's top football police officer, Deputy Chief Constable Mark Roberts, has softened his stance on insisting that behind closed door matches to finish the season are not played at home. That was a security issue, again, about fans congregating outside. So that seems to be uh, another, I won't say spanner in the works, fly in the ointment, uh, uh, something else that's that's cropped up. We'll have to see whether the police stick with that or not. But I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm seeing so many conflicting things day to day. This project restart does not seem as set in stone or as as thoroughly thought out as we thought it had. Or as thoroughly agreed upon, I think, is is really the question. Definitely. That's their problem right now is I don't know that the players – we've been hearing this, but I don't know that the players want this right now. Uh, Danny Rose weighing in saying football shouldn't even be spoken about until the numbers have dropped massively. People's lives are at risk. Uh, Raheem Sterling also weighed in saying the moment we do go back, it just needs to be a moment where it's not just for footballing reasons, which you and I kind of talked about earlier. Uh, It's safe for not just us footballers, but the whole medical staff, referees. Uh, He said this on his YouTube channel. Uh, Sterling went on, I don't know how that's going to work, but I feel like once that side of the people's safety and the player's safety is secured and their well-being is looked after, then that's the right time to go back. Until then, I'm, how can I say, not scared but reserved and thinking – what the worst outcome could be. So some of these guys, you know, Danny Rose, Raheem Sterling, these are 
prominent names that aren't they're not like yeah let's go let's get back out there and play that's that's i'm sure they're not alone in feeling that way andrew this is nothing new we heard this two weeks ago from sergio aguero that there clearly is a groundswell of opinion amongst players that they're really they have reservations about going back and and like you said before and it's the salient point going back for the right reasons um you know i don't necessarily from from the data that i've seen think that coronavirus could affect detrimentally somebody in their 20s or in their 30s as a professional athlete but at the same time i'm reading articles about how one of the key problems that medical professionals are having with this virus is that in some cases it attacks people as old as or as young as 37 or 38 it causes blood clots it causes all sorts of uh, it attacks some of the major organs it's different and it attacks different organs for a lot of people and we can't say for sure that every single Premier League footballer that sets onto the field is 100% safe and they have every right to voice their concerns about this. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go. So I guess for now, like we still, with the Premier League, with the Championship, with MLS, um, even Italy, like you mentioned, Spain, like we still don't know what we don't know. So for now, the focus, it's next week, we're going to be doing a podcast where we'll be recapping soccer action from the Bundesliga. So great. <laughs> that's good, man. It's brilliant. Oh. And honestly, with, with, the, with the stuff we've been doing, we have not been stuck for soccer talk. In a no. way, in a way, the season, the football never ends. Gee, yeah. That's not a thing we've said hundreds and hundreds of times before. Um, I'll tell you what, we're going to talk to James Montague in a sec. But first, JJ, I want to tell you something about Shippo. For e-commerce businesses, shipping in two days or less is the new standard. As a growing business, how can you keep up? Introducing Shippo your business's new secret weapon. Shippo is the only shipping software for growing businesses that you can start today, set up in minutes, and then ship today because they ship hundreds of millions of packages. Shippo's volume discounts save you up to 90% off carrier rates. Simply connect your online store to Shippo. No coding or technical expertise required. They'll uh, instantly identify the lowest shipping rates from 55 plus top global carriers like UPS, USPS, FedEx, DHL, uh, your orders are automatically pulled in, ready to go. Just click, print, and ship. Plus, automated return labels are free. You only pay, uh, you only pay if your customers use them. Companies that use Shippo save thousands of dollars, free up hours of valuable time, and on average, grow 77% year over year. Join over 100,000 companies like Goat, Hims, MeUndies, who are saving up to 90% off carrier rates with Shippo. So for our listeners, here's the deal. Uh, they're offering their best discount available anywhere. Get a shipping consultation and Shippo Pro Plan six-month trial for free at goshippo.com slash offside. That's up to a $700 value for free at goshippo.com slash offside. Go right now, get your shipping consultation and Shippo Pro Plan six-month trial for free at goshippo.com slash offside, O-F-F-S-I-D-E. Go Shippo. Uh, James Montague, we talked to him, when was the last time, JJ? It was around the World Cup. He was he was in Croatia. He was in Belgrade. Oh, okay. And yeah. uh, he, he joined us to talk about how Croatia have been this footballing miracle from such a small population and rising from the ashes of the war to, to create a team that goes all the way to a World Cup final. Yeah, but he's a renowned author, uh, renowned journalist, one of our favorite guys to talk about this sport with. And really to talk about, we, we've always enjoyed talking fan culture with him. So he's kind of taken that passion and just gone all in on it 
uh, and he's written this unbelievable book uh, about ultras. Uh, it's called 1312, Among the Ultras, the Explosive Inside Story of the World's Most Extreme Fans. Um, it, it's a fascinating look. I can't wait to talk to him about it. The 1312, it's like this code uh, within ultra culture. It's like a kind of an like an anti-police code within ultras, and it's sort of just like a thing that they, I guess, share among one another. Yeah, they use they use codes a lot in in ultra and in far right fringe culture. They'll have numbers to denote certain things, dates, names, and things like that. And this is one of them. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on with ultra culture that we that we've spoken about at length that we don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but James was was embedded within this and, and can kind of share the ins and outs of what it's all about. And uh, we're really excited to talk to uh, to him now about this book. Uh, James Montague back on the show. James, what's up, man? How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm pretty decent. It's um, yeah, it's been it's been two months under lockdown, and I guess we're all in the same boat. But you know, I've I've planned my escape back home to Istanbul, so I'm oh, thinking wow. in two weeks maybe we might be on the move. But um, I'm in England now, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully th- that things will change. I mean, it, it's got to get better at some point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked about how you've been on the move so much. I was actually curious because I know for this book, your traveling was so extensive. Um, I mean, like if, if what we're in now had happened whenever you, like you wouldn't have been able to write this book, right? Like, oh no, I'd, it would be, I'd have been absolutely screwed. I mean, football would have stopped. I mean, in a way, what's very interesting about ultra culture is that a lot of, cause it's a culture that exists kind of, you know, it's attached to football, but in many respects, it's also separate from football as well. And so you actually seen quite a few stories about, um, kind of, uh, kind of charitable work and, kind of incidents that ultras are kind of involved in. Like, I don't know, there was like an incident in Zagreb where the bad blue boys of um, of Dinamo Zagreb were, where there was, there was a, actually, I don't know if you heard this, but there was an earthquake there a few, about six weeks ago. And they rushed to the hospital and were involved in like, you know, evacuating it and stuff. And there's been lots of like German ultra groups who are involved in like uh, raising money for, and uh, getting PPE for kind of health workers and getting food for them and stuff. So there has been, you know, it still goes on, but it wouldn't have, yeah, I mean, the, the fact is my my world has now become very, very small. Whereas before this, and not just this book, I mean, every other book and a lot of my writing, you know, it, it was a very big world. I could go anywhere I kind of wanted. I was really lucky for that. And so now my world is literally, I reckon, 200 meters in diameter. Like, right. that's it, you know. And so, yeah, if this had happened a year ago, then that book, yeah, that this book probably wouldn't have wouldn't have been finished. Before we get into the book itself, which is absolutely fascinating, I've been enjoying reading it, although I'm not finished it yet. I've yet to get to Albania, Indonesia, and places like that, which I'm fascinated to see what kind of supporter culture there is there. But um, James, how would the ultras, or the at least the people that you have um, talked to and communicated with and been amongst for the writing of this book, how will they take the resumption of leagues without fans in the stadium? Well, I think quite badly. Um, we've already seen that. I mean, one of the things that I, there's a big chapter on Germany and, and the reason why I focus in on Germany is because it has, I mean, they have pretty much the most politically active ultra scene in the world. I mean, it's fa- fantastic when you see, I mean, there's some, you know, there's far left, there's far right. There's a lot of, kind of tr- there's a lot of, especially with the far right, there's, there are some troubling political connections, but even the, the groups that are from a kind of kaleidoscope of political backgrounds all kind of campaign on very similar issues. So, you know, against high ticket prices, you know, against, 
uh, Monday night football, which is, you know, against kind of working people because working people have to take a Monday off if they want to travel around Germany. Um, loads of things like the, the, the ownership structure in German football, 50 plus one, which is quite complex, but means that a lot of the power is kept in the hands of the fans. So, so they're always being involved in the, you know, in decision making. And as soon as Bundesliga was, it now looks like it will be the first major kind of world league to restart. They're, they're, they're dead against it. Because you know, without without fans, football's nothing. And I think there is a there is also a fear that, that, that this took place, this um, pandemic, and you know that a lot of people might use this as an excuse to take away the power from ultras in German football. Because just before this happened, I don't know if you caught up with this, but there was a really interesting uh, issue that took place involving a guy called Dietmar Hopp, who's the billionaire yes. owner of yeah of Hoffenheim, and. Ultras in Germany, all ultras are against Hoffenheim and against RB Leipzig because they see them two teams as having got around this fan ownership model that they have, this 50 plus one. It's a bit more complicated than that, but basically it gives them a lot more power. And so, you know, the ultras have been, you know, they, 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 there was one match in particular where they were abusing Hoff and they were giving him, you know, there was a banner. I mean, a lot of it was quite distasteful, as to be said. But it, what was interesting was the players started playing amongst themselves. It was against Bayern Munich. And they were playing amongst themselves because they disagreed with what the ultras were saying. And there was a big debate whether the ultras had gone too far. Uh, should they be cracked down on? Um, and it was, a, it was a silly debate, really, because, I mean, the ultras in Germany have kind of kept German football honest. The reason why German football is the best fan experience in the world is partly down to the ultras for keeping the ownership, which is something you can't imagine in American sports. But the fans keep the owners' feet to the fire on almost every single issue, and so I can see, I, I can see. I mean, the fans are dead against it. You can see every ultra group is against it. Same in Italy. I mean, Atalanta's ultras have said they're having the season of their lives. But the epicenter in Italy was in Bergamo. Um, they have one of the most famous ultra groups in the world, pretty much. And they're like, even though we were doing so good, uh, we can't celebrate this when you know our our family or old people are dying. So we're our season is over, whatever you decide to do. So yeah, across the world, ultras are pretty much dead against it. And Germany's going to be the first real battleground for it. James, the book itself is fascinating, but there's actually, there's some questions I have for you just about almost more of like the process of having written the book. Now you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I guess my outsider perception of ultra culture is that it's just a little bit closed off to the mainstream uh, and mainstream sports society. So with that in mind, I mean, how cooperative were some of these groups to take you in? I mean, you were essentially embedded among these ultra groups. Were they, they were on board with all of this? Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I had a, I did an interview a few months ago where somebody, uh, they wrote it up afterwards like I was undercover. I wasn't undercover. I was, I couldn't go undercover. I'd be sniffed out in an instant and then, and then I really would be in a lot of trouble. No, I, I, the reason why, I mean, I've, I've always been, fascinated by fan culture and, and it's a weird thing to say but weirdly and I think this, anyone that's read anything I've read for the uh, written for the Bleach Report or the New York Times you know I never really actually write about football you know it's, it's all soccer it's, it's, it's you know it's everything around it and I've always found that the fans have always been the most fascinating uh, kind of interesting part of it so over the past 15 years traveling around going to quite obscure places um, I think going quite deep into a lot of the s- stories that I've done um, I built up a kind of network of contacts, and although I was I, I was always aware I was an outsider, and that I'd never really be truly taken in as one of them, 
um, I was allowed, you know, access to people who were, you know, the foundational figures within the Italian ultra scene, uh, within Argentina. I mean, I managed to get to speak to um, uh, Rafa De Zeo, who's the head of uh, La Dosa, which is the batter of, of Boca Juniors, who's, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's almost like a celebrity in Argentina, but he's also, you know, one of the most kind of infamous fan leaders in the world. And so it was also about finding the right people. So it was, it was just a network of contacts that I'd kind of built up over the years. And in a lot of, the, a lot of cases, I mean, I, I wrote this up later on in the book, but a lot of the time I, I got turned away. I, they, they didn't want anything to do with me. Um, and so it was, it was, you know, I mean, it, I lived in Belgrade until very recently and I have good friends who are Red Star fans, many of them in Delia, who, which is the ultras group there, you know, and even someone that they, trusted and knew and you know would have a beer with i was british i was a journalist you know there's just no way we could do anything so there were there were doors that were closed to me but there were just insane numbers of doors that were were open to me because of i actually found there was one there was one incident where i got an interview with diabolic uh fabrizio Bicitelli, who's the that was the leader of the Iladucibla, which is the far right, um, kind of almost neo-Nazi group of, of, of Lazio, ultras group of Lazio. And we kind of, we had a contact and we were going back and forth kind of talking about doing the interview and what kind of sealed the deal wasn't necessarily any, it was about the, the previous book I, I was told is the previous book I'd written, which was called the billionaires club, which is about, you know, why the super rich are taking over soccer and how that's pretty much a bad thing and how the super rich generally just mess things up wherever they go. And th- that was an issue that weirdly in the horseshoe shape of the political spectrum, whether you're left or on your right, if you're on the far left and the far right, that's an issue that they, they meet on. You know, they're also railing against globalization. They're railing against the super rich. So it was, it was like, okay, he's one of them, but all right, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a go. And so you know, it ends up we have this crazy two-hour interview, very intense interview at the headquarters in Rome, um, where he, you know, he's very open, very honest about his his fascism. And I mean, when he gets out the car, goes into the headquarters, he, you know, everybody gives him the Roman salute. Uh, we do the interview next to a big portrait of Mussolini. I wish I'd taken a picture of it, but but that would have been that, that would have been a bit like, yeah, that would have been a bit too try hard, I think. So, but yeah, it was, it was just it was just crazy, and then. You know, it was it was a really intense interview, and then three months later, he was shot dead in a park in Rome um, because he was also involved in all sorts of extracurricular activities, which you see a lot in the, in the Italian and ultra scene, and then the Ballas Bravas in in Argentina. You know, it's, it's kind of morphed into organised crime as well as kind of far right politics. So it was, um, I think, on the one hand, once and then once you started speaking to some groups. And they'd heard that you'd spoken to people who were kind of revered in the scene, which diabolic was by a certain side of it. Then, then that, that kind of opened other doors for me as well. So it was just, it was a very, um, long hustle basically to not hustle in, in like trying to get one over on anyone, but like I was constantly thinking who to get, what to do, how to speak. Sometimes there's one time I went to Morocco to meet someone and then they all, they all kind of ghosted me as soon as I got there. I was in Casablanca. They all ghosted me because I turned up at one of the uh, match that I, I got there early. So there was a, a game before the Casablanca derby I was supposed to be at. And I got there and the police immediately saw me, kind of started questioning me. 
but all the guys in the curve saw the police talking to me and because they're under like intense police surveillance that was it it was it was over no one replied to a single and to this day i never got a reply from any message that i ever ever wrote to them so yeah it was it was a hustle but it was you know it was you know it was it was it was the absolute best i could do (laughs) James, you were talking about the doors that were open to you, and and one of the the fascinating doors that were open to you uh, begins the chapter on the Italian ultras, and that's where you spoke to basically a lawyer for the ultras who represents ultras in I think what we would call our or we would know as football banning orders. Yeah, and he was a former ultra himself. Yeah, Contucci, Lorenzo Contucci. He was. I mean, he was. I mean, that was my kind of entry into Rome. Uh, there was a, in fact, there's one of the reasons why I managed to speak to so many people in Italy. I don't know if you guys, uh, watch Copper 90, uh, but there's a guy called Martino's from LA, big galaxy fan, but he's Italian American, speaks at five languages. He's like a polymath and a polyglot, like super intelligent. He should be kind of building rocket ships rather than Mm. being obsessed with, uh, football fan culture and ultras, which is, which is what he, what he is. And, um, you know, his family kind of based in Rome. And so we, we, we could have went around and he could have found all these people to speak to. And one of them, I'd never heard of Lorenzo before. And we went and met him and he, he'd broken his leg that, it, oh, he wouldn't answer his phone. Like the interview was like, so I thought, oh, well, he's just canceled. This is, I was kind of used to that. It turned out he'd broken his leg in a, in a kind of moped accident going around the Colosseum. It was like the most Roman thing you could imagine. Like, <laughs> the only thing to make it more Roman if it was in black and white, you know, and there's a you know, statue of the Virgin Mary on a helicopter coming past or something. And, and it was, um, you know, and yeah, so this guy was, to me, it was the bridge between what happens when you're not an ultra, which basically you, you're always an ultra. Ultra is, is like a youth scene. You know, this is a this is one of the biggest youth movements in the world. And Contucci grew up on the uh, as a Roma fan on the Curva Sud in the Stadio Olimpico. You know, had seen it grow during its kind of heyday in the 80s and 90s. And then, you know, what happens when you get too old to go? You know, you've got family, um, you've got commitments. You know, you can't, you know, ultra, ultra means to go beyond, you know, to go beyond, to support your team in, in a, in a insane way, 24 hours, seven days a week. But when you, when you're 40, you can't do it anymore. And if you can do it anymore, then there's lots of other things that are probably quite wrong in your life. Mm-hmm. So Katucci worked out quite a good middle ground, which was he was, he'd uh, studied to be a lawyer. He became a lawyer and then he decided to dedicate his life to, overturning defeated like the banning orders that they brought in in italy to deal with the ultras in the mid 2000s because he got arrested and he saw how unfair it was because it is completely arbitrary i mean one of the big things that the ultras around the world kick against is police control now in some cases you can see why there's police control because there is this constant friction between the two groups and you know the ultras aren't they aren't they aren't angels you know they this is a subculture that kicks against authority so of course authority is gonna is gonna kick back but still, that doesn't give the police the right or the authorities the right to put these orders in place where there's no judicial oversight. You know, there, there is a human rights issue. And he picked up on that. And now that's his job. That's what he does. He's basically got this law firm where he represents lawyers, all around, uh, uh, ultras all around Italy, even from rival firms, from rival ultras groups, kind of overturning this uh these defeated because you know this original the original sin was him having it in the first place so it was yeah it, it, he was a fascinating character all this with two hours again in a in his hospital bed with his leg kind of winched up and um yeah and that that to me you know that was that was a good opening that that's a good opening place to understand italian ultras i think yeah, yeah. 
sorry, Andrew, to cut across you. Just to, just on one thing there, um, James, we see this in a kind of a, a very solid framework in terms of, let's just say, Rome. Politically speaking, we say Lazio are far right, they're Mussolini supporters, and uh, Roma are, are communists, are left wing. But it, it's, it's much more malleable than that. And it, it seems to change over the decades in the book. It, it does. And I think that, um, I don't know if, if either of you guys have read, I mean, uh, frankly, for um, David Goldblatt, Simon Cooper, mm. I mean, these, these guys, and, and, you know, I mean, one of the, that's what I kind of try to realise as well, is that these guys have been writing about the idea of football stadiums and football terraces being really a reflection of society, or at least a certain strata in society. And Italian football stadiums is a brilliant example of that. And Rome is probably the best example you can give because, yes, the reason why that that uh, political um, identity exists is because Lazio's fan base was representative of a kind of a slightly out on the suburbs Rome that was much more right wing. But the inner city areas of Rome were, you know, bastions of the Communist Party, kind of ultra left wing. So when those groups arrived, you know, in the Curva Sud, you know, they they took up the names of kind of of, of leftist, you know, political causes of the day. So the Fedayeen, for instance, which is um, one of the one of the main or was one of the main groups. You know, that's that's the name was taken from from the Palestinian uh, liberation struggle. You know, of the nineteen seventies, which is a you know this is like a massive cause celeb for for the for the left at that time. But what happens? Italy changes. Rome changes. The inner city of Rome changes. Um, immigration becomes a much bigger political issue, and it's exploited. And so those, as, as you know, the fall of communism, communism and socialism becomes a far less um, kind of popular uh, political identity, you know, that then changes. It moves rightwards and rightwards and rightwards. And then what you find is that the Rome, the curve, the curve of Sud, then changes rightward as well. So now when you're talking to, I mean, you do find left wing uh, Roma fans. I've even found a couple of left wing Lazio um, ultras as well. I mean, they they keep themselves to themselves, but um, <laughs> you know, but but you know, um, you do find them. But what's interesting is is actually how similar those those two groups politically are. Um, and you know, another thing is that the, the control is so much that they don't really meet in the same way anymore. So they don't fight in the same way. Um, it's very, you know, Italian football is a very different place to what it was in the eighties and nineties. Even though TV companies love to make it look like it's you know pyro and drum you know and all that and capos but you know it has been you know they've they've kind of legislated the life out of it but yeah it's that's that's something that i I noticed almost in every football stadium around the world is that even in lafc you know that the 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 stadium the the stand that represents the community it comes from and and to me i find that i find that endlessly fascinating james one thing i've always wondered about with some of these groups the people within an ultra group do they love soccer like to a man or do they just kind of love the culture that they're a part of? I mean, it's a, it's a bit of both. To be honest, I found that the, the further down the kind of pyramid that you go, so you have the capo at the top and, you know, you have the foot soldiers below them. The, 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 the rank and file, right, in the ultras movement absolutely live and love that scene like it's a religion. You know, they'll fight for it. They'll shed blood for it. And not just for their team, but for the concept of having, you know, a subculture that is, you know, that is outside of societal control. You know, they will fight, you know, almost to the death, sometimes to the death to protect that. Um, and that is, you know, at its root, that is something that is 
based on an absolute like love for i mean in italy you could say okay it's love for your bell tower you know it's a love for your city and your and and your town but you know it's it's that team that really takes in all that love so yes the root of it is but then what i found is that the more that i spoke to people higher up the organizers the founders you know i was actually surprised at how little they liked or enjoyed football um how little they knew about football and then you realize that it wasn't you know, people were attracted to it as well, not just because of, you know, the football. They're attracted to it because they needed to be attracted to something. You know, they needed to be part of a gang. They needed to find an identity, uh, a direction, um, something that gives that gives them some kind of hope in their lives. Uh, you know, and so it could have been a biker gang. It could have been, you know, death metal. It could have been any any kind of graffiti. It could have been any kind of subculture. But they found themselves in in the ultras. And I mean, I found this in Italy. I mean, I, I, so I would often, I asked everybody basically the same question, which was how do you define ultra? And, you know, everybody struggled with it. Everybody like, and gave me kind of a slightly different answer, you know? And then do you like football? Do you still love football? Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when I asked Diabolic and they, he was like, to be honest, I couldn't tell you a favourite player of mine at the moment. I mean, to be fair, he'd been banned from the stadiums for a good couple <laughs> of years. But I mean, you know, you can still watch it on TV. But then, you know, you come across someone like at the end of the chapter on Italy, I, I meet Il Boccia, who's kind of the leader of the Atalanta Ultras. And then then it all kind of made sense to me because before then there was all this stuff about organised crime and the connection to the far right. And then you meet Il Boccia, who's like probably the purest, for the platonic ideal of a of a kind of of a capo who just has lived uh, lived just to give his team you know the the boost that it needs from from the stands but also turned realized that uh, the ultras do have a kind of role to play in improving the lives of the people that are attracted to that subculture so whether that's kind of you know helping out drug addicts uh, campaigning for the homeless and this is a guy who's been banned from stadiums for 26 years now kind of on and off and so but there's everywhere you go in Bergamo you see graffiti you know free botcher they have like 20,000 people march to to let him to come back to the stadium so he's a kind of like a folk hero in that in that town so yeah it, it's it's you know there are people that that made you question like well what what, what why be involved in this but there are others that you thought, well, that's it. That's why I'll do it. And if I was, if I was in Bergamo, I would have followed that guy onto the terraces. I've got no doubt about it. James, I'm in the midst of the chapter on Serbia and uh, Red Star Belgrade in particular, which, which again, is so fascinating to me and actually is helping me understand the collapse of the former Yugoslavia in a way that uh, oh, wow. a, lot, a lot of books haven't been able to do. But um, one thing that comes through is that uh, the, the fans in the 70s and 80s of Red Star Belgrade that would go on to kind of be ultras, they were influenced by English culture. And there's a there's a couple other moments, I think it's with um, Hadjik Split as well, earlier in the book, where, where they talk about certain English influences coming into their realm yeah. and, them, and them adopting them. And my question to you is, why hasn't English football reciprocated? There doesn't seem to be an ultra culture in English football. No, and, and that, one of the reasons is, is because, I mean, we did have an indigenous fan culture that was kind of still is in a way i'll get to that in a second but you know we had our hooligans and when you go i mean i'm living in belgrade you know one of my good friends is a journalist there he's got every single book 
that's been written. Like, there's a whole genre. I mean, I'm not talking about Among the Thugs, but there's a whole genre of, like, like ex kind of like firm leaders who have written like biographies of all the tear ups they've had around England in the seventies and eighties. There's just, there's just thousands of books of them. You know, they're not in Serbia. They're not kind of like translating, um, kind of modern English literature. They're translating those books because they sell well. People love that kind of stuff because English hooliganism is still to this day, still an extremely influential thing. And I try to, what I try to explain in the book is that ultras are, it's not just Italy. I mean, before then, you had the Baddest Bravas and, and the Torcida in Brazil, um, and you had the hooliganism, in, the hooligans in England as well. And so, in a way, the the, the fashion, the attitudes, uh, the organisation, the, the the lingua franca, the songs, uh, the pyro, all these things get mashed up from all of them. So the English, I mean, the British did have this thing that was very well respected and. There's a kind of cross pollinization because of globalization that gets sped up because of technology over over the years. But then what happens in in England is that uh, we have a series of stadium disasters and you know hooliganism is out of control. But we have um, we have Heisel, uh, you know, which which leads to British uh, English teams being kind of banned from European competition. And then we had Hillsborough, which obviously was, has nothing to do with hooliganism, but it was emblematic of the police. Um, you know, the, the fans of Liverpool uh, campaigned tirelessly for decades to get justice for the people that were killed there. Um, but it was, you know, the stadiums were in a really bad way. The police were treating people like animals. Um, it, something had to change. And so the reforms that followed Hillsborough basically kept, like, ended everything. There was no, right. there's no way that the, that, that 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 hooligan culture or that kind of you know more um kind of the, the fan culture that's rooted in the terraces that's you know close to the community that couldn't really survive that okay. you know so then you had all seater stadiums you had pr- ticket prices going up people priced out the game you know it became more of an entertainment product than it was a game and what was interesting is that you know there the, the, the reason why this fan culture exists everywhere or had, had existed is because it gave, it was a space that people could, could, uh, you know, colonize. You can't do that in an all seater stadium. You can't do that at, you know, candlestick, but does candlestick park still exist. No, no, no. Okay. Well, you can't do, you definitely can't do it there. But, um, but like, you know, just to try to think of an American, like baseball stadium, like it's not a space you could go and, you know, have a kind of a, a, like a subculture there where you're kind of in control of your part of the stadium. You know, it's, you know, your ticket is your seat number, you know, and that's it. You go and buy your beer and you come back. And so, um, so there's the, after Hillsborough and after the start of the Premier League and the Taylor Report and everything that happens with English football, there is no space for a subculture like ultras to come in and influence. Because if you look at Germany, like the ultras come in and actually that's what happened. There was still a space. They had a very hooligan influence scene until the late nineties when people started watching Syria ah, free to air on German television and they started copying it. And so now they have an ultra scene because they had a space that allowed it to develop. Whereas we never had that. Okay. Um, and what's, what's most interesting, I think there's two things is that one hooliganism, English hooliganism, and I, there's not a chapter on hooligans in this, but they're a constant thread during, through the entire book mm-hmm. is there's still hugely uh, influential amongst youth around the world. I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched Green Street, sometimes called Green Street Hooligans, yeah. which kind of like people make a joke about it in England because it's got Elijah Wood as a kind of American 
hooligan in at West Ham. You know, and so people were like, oh, yeah, that's funny. But guys I met in Indonesia, it was like it was like a documentary to them. (laughs) And so it was, you know, and the the final thing I'll say about this as well is that um, the authorities in Italy, almost every country that, you know, the authorities struggle to control this, whether it's the bada or whether it's the the ultra or whatever, whichever group it is they're trying to control, they look to England as that's what we have to do. That's what we should do. That's how we cut this out as we follow that, you know, we cut it off at the root. So it's a, yeah, it's a complicated issue, but it's one that, um, you know, I, you do see ultras coming into, in England, but they're very much the lower, lower leagues. There's, there's a, a big group in um, Celtics. There's a bit more space in Scottish football. Yeah. So, so very much an English thing, but yeah, it's it's um, it, it's yeah that we had a very different set of circumstances that kind of means it's it's almost impossible for a, for a fan scene in in top division football to put down roots in the same way. James, one more from me. Your we talked about your travels for this were so extensive. Your access for this book was unbelievable. I'm just wondering, you know, you're running with some interesting characters here in the process of writing this. Did you ever have a moment where you kind of took a step back and we're sort of thinking, I don't know if I should be here right now. There's a couple. I mean, there was um, the, near the end, I was in Indonesia and I was traveling across Java with the ultras for Persija, which is the biggest team from Jakarta. And there was like an administrative mix up from the coach. And we had to get off on the side of a highway and we ended up getting chased by a group of guys with machetes. Um, <laughs> who qualify as one of those moments. I think. Yeah. And, and I, I write about this in the, in the, in the last chapter which is like, I'm, I'm like 40, I was 39 now, 40 now. So I'm, I'm about to hit 40. I'm running down an unlit highway somewhere between in the middle of Java with 50 people screaming because it's terrifying. And I'm just thinking like, like this can't be worth it. Like I can't, <laughs> I can't, I can't die here. I, like, I, I actually, you know, thought, well, there's no way out because there was, they were chasing us behind and a group kind of came in front of us. So we were, we were blocked and it was, it was only through blind luck that we we ended up getting out of it but um i was just like i was thinking about my daughter and i was thinking how do you explain like it's one thing saying you've gone to war or daddy was a soldier or he's a war correspondent like you know fighting the good fight to tell the truth about what was happening around the world it's a different thing to say you've been hacked to death on the side of a motorway by indonesian ultras i mean if you're like (laughs) what like dad what's that about you know and so um so there's that i mean you know you i met some quite quite interesting people in ukraine i mean i spent a bit of time there mm. where the ultra scene was i mean it's really connected to the far right so I, 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 there were times i spent a lot of time around people who had quite very extreme views because you know ultras are not centrists they're they're they have you know they're 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 on the fringes and i mean there was one incident that I, I was involved in i got involved in the uh, or went to as an observer for the arranged fighting scene in sweden um and this is another thing that's a kind of like a subculture, like on the fringes of ultra culture, is that there are there are literally thousands of people every weekend across Europe meeting up uh, in these highly organised fights in forests, in forest clearings, like away from the police, like even numbers, ten against ten, hundred against hundred, no weapons. People are like properly hench. I mean, they've been they're working out like they're monsters, you know. And it's ultra ultra violent, very secretive, very difficult to get get involved in, and. I, I managed to get involved in one in Sweden, but the other side didn't turn up. It was supposed to be a 70 versus 70 brawl. And then um, the other the other side didn't turn up. So the leader just went like, okay, let's go to where they are. 
and so he ended up and so you know he ends up in a riot outside their pub um which was pretty violent and the police turn up and then i i realize i'm like i'm running away from the police because how am i going to explain that to these to the police that like oh you know it's not like something you can pull the ripcord out you know and say yeah. guys uh you know i'm ready to leave now beam me up scotty you know um it wasn't it wasn't possible so there were quite a few, and to be honest, there were so many of those kind of moments. And there have been a few moments like that in a lot of my work. And it's something that I, I don't seek it, but I, I, I think I've said this to somebody else before, but one of, the, one of the first books I read that made me want to do this kind of stuff was Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. And not necessarily do it in that way. I mean, he got shot in the neck and I don't, I want to try to avoid that as much as possible. Hmm. But he was, you know, but if you want to, if you want to find out about something and write about it, then you've got, you just got to, you just got to throw yourself into it at the deep end. And so, uh, but saying that, I'm not sure I kind of want to do that again. I feel like I've, I think I've like all of my nine lives are up. So, uh, but I mean, but again, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So maybe, maybe that decision has been taken out of me and well, I'll, maybe I'll go to writing blogs about, I don't know, tactics or something, you know? Well, James, thank God for the warm corporate embrace of LAFC, which, which kind of saved you from, uh, oh, from all of- I, what, what, I mean, I loved LAFC. I mean, I, it was, it was at the end of all this, you know, and it, it was, it had been exhausting. I was kind of emotional wreck. Uh, I spent a lot of time away from my family and I went to LAFC and I, I, I chose LAFC because it's a new club and I was interested how, how you built like an ultra culture from nothing, you know? And, you know, American fan culture is seen as really plastic in, in, uh, in Europe, especially. And I thought I, I kind of, I knew a little bit about it, especially through Martino. And, and you know, we've seen Atalanta, uh, sorry, at, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I always would get Atalanta, Atlanta mixed up. Atlanta, you know, but, you know, United and, you know, I knew of, of, you know, things that were happening at certain uh, clubs. And I thought, okay, well, this is a new club. I go there and I knew Bob Bradley from, uh, going to Egypt and seeing him there. I knew him quite well. So I said, you know, Bob, could I come? And, and he kind of put me in touch with a couple of the guys in the fan liaison scene. And to be honest, it was like, it was just incredible being there. You know, they built something very real. Um, it was much more enjoyable than going and watching an English football match almost anywhere. Wow. And, and it was, you know, it's a, I'd seen, it's a very patriarchal scene, you know, organized fan culture around the world, you know, you don't see very many women. Um, it's not a particularly diverse bunch. You know, it's mainly kind of kind of kind of white working class men, pretty much. And um, this was this was a place. It ha- obviously it has a strong you know Latinx feel to it, but not just that. I mean, you know, LA is a city of the future, right? I mean, every every nation is there, and so that's reflected in what the three two five two is. And for me, the the best part of it was. I mean, I was there when they had a Pride Tifo, which would be, if you tried that at like Legia Vashava, you know, <laughs> it'd be, I mean, they'd, 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 bomb, they'd bomb the stadium from the air, you know. So, uh, you know, they had that. and But not only that, they had women in the capo cages. They were, they were female capos. And one in particular I remember speaking to, Breezy, um, who was just, I mean, she was, I mean, she came up to my, you know, armpit. And then she got in a cage and she was like, I mean, she was like 15 foot tall. She's like a colossus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and so it was like, okay, this is, this is one way where you can, you can mix, uh, you know, a, a much more corporate environment than in many yes. in Europe, 
but you can do that in a way that still has some integrity. Uh, like Germany, it's no surprise that they, they look to Germany and Borussia Dortmund in particular as an influence. And so I walked away from that experience thinking if they can maintain that, you know, you know, I, I, I always keep a little bit of that team in my heart, I think. Uh, James Monaghy, one three one two among the ultras, the explosive inside story of the world's most extreme fans. It's out now. It's been out for a few months, obviously through the uh, pandemic. Uh, but it, there's going to be a US edition, I hope, coming out in the fall as well. Like well, this is awesome. Book. This is this is so cool. The, I'm glad you're safe from having written the book, from the current situation right now that we're all dealing with. Uh, thanks so much, James. This is great. Appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Our thanks to James. Oh my God, what an incredible experience just the writing of this this book was for him. My so I only, I only got the book yesterday. So I, I, I flew through the chapters, the initial chapters. I've read the Italian chapter, which is, is stunning. And the Serbian chapter is so, so interesting. As I mentioned, we didn't get to talk uh, fully about it, but me and you are always saying how the breakup of the former Yugoslavia is something that we're not quite 100% sure how it came about. But when he discusses the, uh, I guess, Yugoslavia before the war in terms of football and fan culture, he actually kind of breaks it down a little bit in that explanation. And I kind of understand it a bit more now. Huh. Wow. Uh, his story about his experience in Indonesia being chased by people with machetes. Like, this is, I mean, the research that went into this was, he's he's clearly a, an authority on this topic. So, yeah, uh, great stuff from James. Glad he's uh, he's doing well. Um, that's about it for me. The, the only other thing I wanted to mention was something I just saw before we started recording tonight. And that was, once again, I, I don't know what category this goes under other than just like a weird few months that continue to go on at Tottenham. Uh, a story tonight that uh, Delhi Alley was robbed at knife point after thieves broke into his home in the early hours of Wednesday morning, stealing thousands of pounds worth of jewelry. Uh, Tottenham midfielder was at his North London residence, um, isolating from the coronavirus pandemic with his long-term partner, uh, his stepbrother, and his girlfriend. Another friend is isolating with them. A scuffle ensued after two uh, two men armed with knives entered the property after midnight. Uh, the local police said a man in his 20s, believed to be Ali, was struck in the face and suffered minor injuries before the robbers took various items, uh, including expensive watches, prior to fleeing. Uh, Ali has gone on social media and thanked people for their support, said it was a horrible experience, but everybody's okay for now. Just sh- uh, a little bit shook up, but geez, what a, what a terrifying, terrifying thing to have happen. Glad he's okay. Yeah. And uh, my God, sounds like opportunists who I guess uh, planned it, realized that things would be quiet uh, during a lockdown. And like that, that's weird to me. Like you say opportunists, but so when I, uh, I used to have a, a police officer who lived, a former cop who lived next door to me, and he was talking to us about how most how most robberies occur during the day because that's when robbers they they usually don't want an, any kind of encounter they just want to like get what they need want to get and get out. Um, he said when robberies happen at night, those are the ones that that you have to be scared of a little bit more because that's when the burglar pretty much knows someone's going to be home and they're crazy enough that they just don't care. Are they, they knew who was there and they had enough people that they knew they could deal with it and overpower them. That's that is scary. Yeah. That is really scary. One thing before we get out, um, guess who's been watching the last dance on ESPN and Netflix Zlatan. No. 
Oh, well, what? he has. Did you see what he said about it? No, don't care. He, he relates to Jordan. He's now he said something like, "Now people know what it is to work with a winner. You can you can either handle it or not." Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't get that. A winner. Oh, who are you going to say? A winner, but not exactly a leader. So, um, the Manchester Evening News uh, tweeted this out: Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the Last Dance. It takes me back to when I was a player and the great team with Sir Alex. Michael Jordan, as a leader, you think Roy Keane straight away. Whoa! So, so many similarities to my see, to my to my team seeing that team. And I just, I'm like, okay, Ole, you're on the same page as me. Now, I said this two weeks ago. Last week was like the Roy Keane episode. <laughs> it was the bearing of the grudges. No men in the history of sport have borne grudges longer and harder then Roy Keane and Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan with who was it? BJ, what was his name? BJ Armstrong. He had stuff with, oh yeah, Steve, yeah. Steve Kerr in the face. Right. And and I just think of Roy Keane when he's asked to do a piece of analysis on Carlos Quiroz and the Iranian team during the World Cup. What does he start talking about? He starts talking about the time when Quiroz was coach at United that he threw him up front and didn't show him any respect. And he brings up that grudge straight away. The, the similarities between these two men, we have to get them in a room. I was thinking we get them in a room with the, uh, unfortunately, we can't do it now, but with the dearly departed Jerry Stiller, and we have an airing of the grievances. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing. Oh, good for you. So so you were on this. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, I also saw, um, I saw Gary Lineker, JJ, had a, uh, a, a stream of tweets about his run-in with Michael Jordan once. I'm trying to find it here. But um, I guess Jordan and a bunch of friends were in England and wanted access to some golf course that Gary Lineker was a member at. So somehow Jordan got in touch with Lineker to get him in. And so they all wound up playing around a golf together. And it's, it was it was a pretty cool, pretty cool story. He goes through it. If you find it on his Twitter timeline, he kind of runs through like the sequence of events and just how cool um, of an experience it was. So, yeah, pretty neat. So sad that there's only uh, that this Sunday is it for Last Dance. It's like yeah. sustained me for the last five weeks. Yeah, but one of my one of the most interesting stories in all of sports is the subject of one of their upcoming forthcoming documentaries, Thirty for Thirties, and that's Lance Armstrong, who I just can't get enough. Really? Oh, I've read so many books about him. I've read his book. I've watched every single documentary that's there about him, including the. The Alex Gibney one, which right now is on Netflix and available, and that is the seminal um, account of uh, of Lance Armstrong's uh, times and, in some cases, crimes, I suppose. Um, incredible. I'm really looking forward to the Lance Armstrong documentary. Well, good stuff. I'm looking forward to some Bundesliga this weekend. Should be a, a great time. Like I said, just check out on your your you know one of the FS1s, FS2s for, for games because they're becoming fast and furious. Hey, this was fun, man. To you, I say... Check you later, fun boy. See ya. That is good. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 